You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 95 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Tracy and I had originally planned on releasing a short bonus episode on Nathan Bedford Forrest once we were finished with the Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson story arc. But after thinking it over, we decided to just expand it a bit and make it into our regular episode for this week. So, for those of you who tuned into this episode, expecting to hear us start discussing Sibley's New Mexico campaign, you guys will have to wait one more week for that. Sorry. During the most recently completed story arc, Rich and I mentioned Nathan Bedford Forrest a couple of times, especially in connection with his escape from Fort Donelson. And because of that, and because we'll be mentioning Forrest's name quite a few more times during the course of the podcast, we thought this might be a good time to take a quick look at Forrest's background and then go into just a bit more detail about that breakout that he led from Fort Donelson. Nathan Bedford Forrest, however controversial you consider him to be, is undeniably one of those small handful of men who rose from relative obscurity to unexpectedly become great fighting generals during the Civil War. The other two such men who come immediately to mind are Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. And it's interesting that if you look at Grant and Sherman and Forrest, they were all very different, of course, but one thing they had in common is that they were men who didn't hold any idealized, fanciful notions about war. Grant said, The art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get at him as soon as you can, strike him as hard as you can, and keep moving on. Sherman bluntly declared, War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. And then Forrest went straight to the heart of the matter when he said, War means fighting, and fighting means killing. Another thing that Grant and Sherman and Forrest had in common is that they didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. That is, their actions, the way they went about waging war, matched their words. And perhaps for none of them was that truer than with the man Sherman called a devil, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who by the end of the war had 29 horses shot out from underneath him in battle, and yet he had personally killed or seriously wounded at least 30 men in close combat. So he claimed that when the war was over, he was still a horse ahead.
Nathan Bedford Forrest was born in July 1821 in a cabin in Bedford County, Tennessee. He was the eldest of 11 children of an impoverished backwoods family. Forrest's father, William, eked out a living as a frontier blacksmith. In 1834, William moved the family to northeastern Mississippi, where he died three years later, leaving young Bedford, as he was known, with the enormous responsibility of supporting the large family. His hard scrabble circumstances left no time for school. He spent a total of six months in a classroom, but by sheer hard work and his own abilities, by 1840, Bedford had turned the ramshackle forest homestead into a successful farm that finally let his family live with a degree of financial security. He expanded his business dealings from the farm's produce to speculation in cattle and horses, and as his interest broadened, his income increased. During that time, personal hardship and violence, common elements of frontier life in the South, shaped Forrest's character. He, he was family-oriented and self-reliant, but also possessed a quick temper and a keen sense of personal honor. In 1842, he accepted an uncle's invitation to join in a business partnership at Hernando, Mississippi, about 20 miles south of Memphis, Tennessee. While accumulating a modest degree of wealth in Hernando, Bedford also gained local prominence through several highly publicized disputes. One such incident took place in 1845 when his uncle, Jonathan Forrest, got into a heated argument in the town square with some business rivals, the Matlock brothers. The argument escalated into a violent brawl in which Jonathan was killed. Bedford responded by shooting and killing two of the Matlock brothers. After he emptied his two-shot pistol, a bystander tossed him a knife, which Forrest used to attack the other two brothers, slashing and wounding both. By 1851, Forrest had married, started his own family, and moved to Memphis. At Memphis, he ventured into the slave trade business and eventually became the region's largest slave trader. By 1859, he had built up a substantial fortune buying and selling human beings. He also expanded his business interest into real estate and acquired numerous land holdings, including a pair of cotton plantations. And by the start of the Civil War, Nathan Bedford Forrest was one of the South's wealthiest men, being worth well in excess of $1 million. Forrest always expressed embarrassment over his own lack of education, but he financed college educations for all of his brothers, and he himself pursued a course of self-education, reading widely and training himself to be a careful writer. In 1858, he even entered local politics and gained election as an alderman in Memphis. With the start of the Civil War, when Tennessee seceded from the Union, the 39-year-old Forrest enlisted in Captain Josiah White's Tennessee Mounted Rifles as a private in June 1861. His youngest brother, Jeffrey, and his 15-year-old son, William, also joined up. Forrest didn't stay a private for long, though. The people of Memphis petitioned the state's governor, Isham Harris, to commission Forrest as an officer. The governor wasted little time in doing so, and he gave Lieutenant Colonel Forrest permission to raise and equip his own company of mounted rangers. Forrest then started to seek recruits and gather weapons and equipment with which to outfit his command. Rather than waiting for the Confederate government to provide weapons and equipment, 
Forrest used his own funds to purchase 500 Colt pistols, 100 saddles, and other material for his men. Although he entered the war without any military training and little formal education, Forrest quickly proved his leadership abilities. Commissioned a lieutenant colonel in August, he commanded a battalion of cavalry by October, and in December he and his men had their first taste of battle and victory at the backwoods Kentucky village of Sacramento. Learning that a detachment of 500 Federals was moving through the area, Forrest went after them, employing tactics that would later become his trademarks. Leading just 200 men, he split that small force into three parts, holding the enemy's attention with a small frontal assault by dismounted troopers, while the other two elements, mounted, attacked the Federal detachment's flanks simultaneously. Nathan Bedford Forrest may not have been trained in military science, but as an instinctive, natural-born fighter, he knew how to execute a classic envelopment, fixing the enemy in place while using speed and mobility to unexpectedly hit his flanks. At Sacramento, in an engagement against a force more than twice their number, Forrest and his men killed or captured every one of the enemy. Forrest was still in Kentucky, scouting for the Confederate force at Bowling Green, when Fort Henry on the Tennessee River was captured by the Yankees on February 6, 1862. After Henry's fall, Forrest was ordered to Fort Donelson, and he arrived there, or actually on the far bank of the Cumberland River, with 500 cavalry on the afternoon of February 10th. By early the next day, Forrest had finished ferrying his men and their mounts across the river. Brigadier General Gideon Pillow arrived at Donelson that same day, February 11th, and assumed command of the fort, taking over from Brigadier General Bushrod Johnson. Pillow had known Forrest in Memphis before the war, and he wasted no time in putting Lieutenant Colonel Forrest in command of all of Fort Donaldson's cavalry. Forrest had barely found a campsite for his command before Pillow ordered him out to scout the two roads that connected Henry and Donaldson, which were just 12 miles apart. Three miles out from Fort Donelson, Forrest surprised a Federal scouting party, which he then pressed westward, back toward Fort Henry. But then, when about four miles from the recently captured fort, Forrest encountered a sizable number of enemy soldiers. This was Grant's army, preparing to finally move out and start their march to Fort Donelson early the next day. Forrest returned and reported what he had discovered to Pillow. But Forrest's news apparently made little impression on Pillow, since early the next day, February 12th, Pillow set off upriver on a mission to find his immediate superior, Brigadier General John B. Floyd. Pillow aimed to browbeat Floyd into letting him, Pillow, keep the troops he had diverted to Fort Donelson. That morning, Forrest was ordered out on another patrol, and about 9 a.m., about two miles out the lower road, Forrest again found the Yankees. He quickly dismounted two of his best armed companies, they were equipped with the breech-loading Maynard carbines, and he put them into ambush on a wooded ridge overlooking a spot where the road passed through a clearing, and when Federal cavalry entered the kill zone, the Confederates opened up on them. For several hours, Forrest cavalry sparred with the leading elements of Federal General John McClernand's division. McClernand attempted to move around to the right to outflank the rebels, but Forrest countered with his own move in that direction, and for good measure followed up with a mounted charge. 
Forrest sent repeated requests for reinforcements to Brigadier General Simon Bolivar Buckner, who was in command during Pillow's absence, but Pillow had left orders that Buckner was to do nothing that might bring on a major engagement. So rather than sending reinforcements out to Forrest, Buckner eventually ordered him to withdraw back inside the Confederate lines. Pillow returned to Fort Donelson that afternoon, and then John B. Floyd arrived to take command early the next morning. On the 13th, fighting flared up at a couple of spots around the fort's outer defensive works as the Federals probed the Confederate lines. But other than supplying mounted couriers for the units involved in fending off the Yankee attacks, and engaging in a shooting match with some pesky enemy sharpshooters, Forrest did little that day. The next day, the 14th, about noon, Forrest and his men formed up to participate in the intended breakout. But as you guys already know, Gideon Pillow, for whatever reason, aborted that first breakout attempt. That afternoon, the Federal gunboats steamed up the Cumberland and attacked the Confederate water batteries. Forrest, watching the seemingly unstoppable advance of the Yankee ironclads and impressed by the booming of the enemy gunboat's big cannon, thought the defenders were doomed. But the boats were hammered by the rebel gunners, and one by one, the battered ironclads were forced to retire back downstream. Despite the victory over the Federal ironclads, Floyd believed Grant's army was only growing stronger by the hour. So it was decided that another breakout attempt would be made early the next morning, Saturday, February 15th. To support that attempt, Forrest had his men in place by 4 a.m., but they then had to wait in the cold and the blowing snow for two hours while all of Pillow's units moved into position. When the assault on the Federal right did get underway, the Yankees were surprised and outnumbered, but they fought back stubbornly. Forrest, on marshy ground over near the Cumberland, was guarding the Confederate attacker's left flank, but he wasn't content simply playing a supporting role, though, and Forrest pressed forward as he was able as the Federals slowly withdrew. As Pillow's attack continued to roll forward, and as the hard-pressed Yankees continued to fall back, they uncovered a portion of the Forge Road, one of the roads the Confederates planned to use to escape from the fort. And as soon as Forrest saw an opportunity to strike in that area, he ordered a charge, which captured three guns of Battery E, 2nd Illinois Light Artillery. A short time later, Forrest led another charge that savaged the flank of the 11th Illinois Infantry. After that, Forrest would lead yet another attack that captured the guns of Battery D, 1st Illinois Light Artillery. Forrest seemed to be everywhere, wherever the fighting was thickest. He had two horses killed underneath him, and after the battle, his overcoat was found to have 15 bullet marks. As you guys already know, though, all of that hard fighting, even though it succeeded in shoving back the Federals and opening the escape route out of Fort Donelson, it was all for naught, since Gideon Pillow, apparently thinking the Confederates had won such a complete victory they could march out at their leisure, Pillow pulled his troops back inside the rebel lines, and Buckner's men followed. After Ulysses S. Grant arrived on the field, he took advantage of Pillow's blunder and he seized the initiative. At Grant's direction, C.F. Smith attacked and broke through the Confederate lines in the north, and to the south, Lew Wallace advanced and by nightfall had retaken most of the ground that had been lost earlier in the day, but not all. How much of a gap still existed between the Federal right and the river how much of a gap the Confederates could still have used to escape is still a matter of speculation today. 
As Floyd, Pillow, and Buckner held another council of war in Dover that night, initial scouting reports seemed to indicate there were as yet no enemy forces blocking the escape route. But then other reports started to come in saying that the Federals had advanced and once again covered the roads, although this intelligence seemed to be mostly based on the number of campfires that Confederate scouts could see in that direction. By the time Nathan Bedford Forrest arrived at Confederate headquarters, the senior officers were no longer discussing cutting their way out, but were speaking of surrendering the garrison. Forrest was incredulous, since he was certain the escape route was still open. He himself had recently ridden over the area in question, and found that the supposed enemy campfires seen in the woods were in fact small fires lit by some of the many wounded men still lying out in the open, wounded men who were simply trying to stay warm during another bitterly cold night. But Floyd and Buckner believed that the scouting reports indicated a line of Federal infantry was now astride the escape route, and nothing Forrest said could convince them otherwise, so he left to arrange another reconnaissance. Forrest scouts confirmed the Yankees had blocked the Winds Ferry Road, but other scouts reported that where the road closest to the river, the old Charlotte Road, Cross flooded Lick Creek, the high water was saddle skirt deep on the horses for about 200 yards, but no enemy force was in the area. But none of the Confederate brigadiers relished the thought of ordering the infantry to march through frigid water that was three feet deep when the temperature that night had plunged to 10 degrees. In fact, they were convinced such recklessness would result in an extremely high death rate for the rebel infantry. So Floyd and Buckner were certain escape was impossible and surrender was inevitable. Pillow continued to argue, argue against surrender, but in the end, Floyd and Buckner's defeatism prevailed, and even Pillow lost confidence in fighting on. Then occurred the shameful incident we related last week, where Floyd and Pillow each in turn relinquished command of Fort Donelson, and Simon Bolivar Buckner assumed it. When Nathan Bedford Forrest heard of that final decision, he returned to headquarters. In his book, Where the South Lost the War, Kendall Gott writes, quote, Forrest was thoroughly convinced that he could escape and make his way to Nashville, and added that he had promised the parents of many of his young troopers to protect them when in his power to do so. Growing more agitated as he spoke, Forrest asserted that he would prefer that the bones of his men should bleach on the surrounding hills rather than that his troops be carried to the north and cooped up in prison pens during midwinter. Forrest then leveled at General Buckner, I think there is more fight in our men than you think, but if you will let me, I will take out my command. At this, General Pillow suggested that Forrest be allowed to escape. The authorization was given on the express condition that he would do so before the flag of truce was raised. Forrest then turned to Pillow and asked, General, I fought under your command. What shall I do? Pillow answered, Cut your way out to which Forrest replied, I will, by God. At this, Forrest stomped out of the room in disgust. End quote. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, 
And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After leaving headquarters, Forrest sent for his subordinate officers and briefed them on the situation, telling them he had no intention of surrendering and he would lead out all who would go with him. By 4 a.m. on Sunday morning, February 16th, Forrest and about 400 of his men were ready to attempt their escape from Fort Donelson. As the column of cavalrymen made their way toward the picket line, they were joined by about 100 more men who had found horses to ride after they decided they would cast their lot with Forrest and join the breakout. Forrest had barely led the column out on the old Charlotte Road when four scouts returned with news that Federal infantry was deployed in line of battle just ahead. Forrest wanted this disturbing news double-checked, but no one volunteered to make the reconnaissance, so Forrest said he would do it himself. And so he and his youngest brother, Lieutenant Jeffrey Forrest, rode forward and found that in the mist and the early morning darkness, the scouts had mistaken a wooden fence line for a force of enemy infantry. Forrest and his brother then advanced farther and found some of the wounded Yankees who had managed to gather around small fires during the night to try and keep from freezing to death there in the woods. The wounded Federals told Forrest that a few scouts from both sides were the only ones to have moved through the area during the night. With that welcome information, Forrest returned to the column and the men made their way to the ford at Lick Creek, just east of Dover, without a shot being fired at them. That morning, Lick Creek was flooded with swirling backwater from the nearby Cumberland, and a skim of ice had started to form along its banks. Calling for someone to test the depth of the dark, frigid water, and again finding no volunteers, Forrest spurred his horse into the stream. He made it across, and the watching men could see that the water was indeed, as reported, only saddle skirt deep. The column then crossed over quickly. Forrest left a detachment at that spot to cover the withdrawal, and those men remained there for two hours without seeing any Federal soldiers. Forrest would always maintain his certainty that most of the garrison could have followed his example and escaped from Fort Donelson that morning, if only the generals had been willing to try. Forrest's column rode into Nashville two days later, on February 18th, and found the city descending into chaos. John B. Floyd had arrived in the Tennessee State Capitol after making good his personal escape up the Cumberland, and Albert Sidney Johnston had put him in charge of supervising the removal of the vast amount of military stores and equipment that the Confederacy had stockpiled in the city's warehouses. 
Albert Sidney Johnston himself led the bulk of the army as it continued its withdrawal south toward Murfreesboro, and Floyd, left on his own in Nashville, not surprisingly made a complete hash of his assignment. The entire city was on edge, expecting the approach of Grant's victorious army or the arrival of the Yankee gunboats at any moment. Under Floyd's supervision, the whole operation of removing the military supplies quickly broke down, and mobs of civilians began to loot the government warehouses, carrying off whatever they could. In Where the South Lost the War, Kendall Gott writes, quote, Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry column rode into Nashville on February 18th and found the city in a panic. Most of Johnston's army was gone, and the enemy was expected to arrive at any moment. The city was utterly defenseless. People and vehicles of every description crammed onto the roads. Other citizens boarded the remaining trains heading south. Force came upon General Floyd, who promptly passed the responsibility for the safety and transport of government supplies to him and left town. Force characteristically set upon the given task with determination. He organized the movement of government property and brought the mobs under control. Through his determined and at times ruthless actions, he was able to save large quantities of war material and machinery from Nashville. End quote. Federal General Don Carlos Buell had been spurred to action by Grant's success at Fort Henry and the corresponding rise of Henry Halleck's stock in Washington. Buell had been energized by the fear of being eclipsed by Halleck, and after the Confederate withdrawal from Bowling Green, Buell had advanced from Louisville, and he finally reached Nashville on February 25th. He was dismayed, to say the least, to find that the city was already occupied by troops he had sent by boat to reinforce Grant after the fall of Fort Henry. You see, Grant, knowing the reinforcements would have to be returned to Buell, but also wanting to take Nashville, decided to cleverly kill two birds with one stone, and so he forded the reinforcements on up the Cumberland escorted by the ironclad Carondelet. And so that's how some of Buell's troops, at Grant's direction, occupied Nashville without a shot being fired on February 25th, just before Buell himself arrived at the city. Grant went to Nashville, the first Confederate state capital to fall into Union hands, the next day, and he received a frosty reception from the immensely annoyed Buell. But we'll wait until we get to our discussion of the Battle of Shiloh to get into what all happened with the Union Army's high command after the Fort Donelson campaign. During our discussion of the Battle of Shiloh will also be the next time we meet up with Nathan Bedford Forrest, where he will start adding to his legend, the legend that was born with his escape from Fort Donelson. We had a few of you guys contact us after the last episode, wondering what happened to Floyd and Pillow after their escapes from Fort Donelson. Well, on March 16th, after the full extent of the disaster at Fort Donelson became known, Jefferson Davis ordered that Gideon Pillow be relieved of command, and Pillow would spend the next 10 months waging a vigorous campaign to clear his name and lobbying for another field command. He'll eventually succeed and be posted to Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee just in time to command a brigade on the last day of the Battle of Stones River on January 2, 1863. But Pillow's leadership was once again questioned, and so Bragg soon named him head of the Army's Conscript Bureau. 
And then Pillow's last command during the war was the thankless job of acting as Commissary General of Prisoners in early 1865. Pardoned by President Andrew Johnson after the war, Pillow was hounded by creditors and bankrupt died of yellow fever in Arkansas in 1878. As for John B. Floyd, we've already seen him making a hash of things in Nashville and then taking off, leaving Nathan Bedford Forrest in charge. But then in March, Jefferson Davis also removed Floyd from command because of his shameful conduct at Fort Donelson. Nevertheless, the Virginia legislature, in its wisdom, saw fit to appoint Floyd a major general of state troops on May 17th. After 15 months spent guarding railroads and salt works in southwestern Virginia and harassing Unionists in the region, Floyd succumbed to illness and died in August 1863. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Battle from the Start, The Life of Nathan Bedford Forrest by Brian Steele Wills. Nathan Bedford Forrest was one of the Civil War's most interesting and controversial figures, so it's not surprising that there are quite a few biographies of the man out there. A Battle from the Start just happens to be the one we like the best. As always, you can find Brian Steele Will's biography of Forrest and all of our past book recommendations if you go to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. As we close, we want to remind y'all that the music we use at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used with permission of Spiritwood Music. And then last but not least, we want to thank all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll definitely, for sure, start in on Sibley's New Mexico campaign. So Tracy and I hope that you'll join us again for that. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.